Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. There is hardly a book of the Bible, I think, that, compared to judge, that can compare to judges in its earthy color and its intrigue. As we read, we wince of how Ehud, the judge, went to visit King Eglon in his palace and slid his dagger into the king's belly so that it disappeared in the fat. We cringe when we think about Jael driving a tent stake through the skull of the Canaanite commander Sisera and into the ground. And our hearts fill with dread and then wonder as we read that God cuts down Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300 and sends them to fight 135,000 Midianites. And Gideon emerges victorious. And we hang our heads as a generation later Gideon's son Abimelech kills his brothers and takes a crown that Gideon had always refused. And perhaps your heart sinks with mine as Jephthah returns from battle, and his daughter comes running out joyously to meet him, and he remembers the oath he had sworn to sacrifice the first thing that came to greet him. And we are filled with awe as Samson uses his God-given strength to wreak havoc with the Philistines. And then we wonder at his naivety when he gives Delilah the secrets of his heart. Today, we are completing our study in the book of Judges. Next week, we'll be moving to the New Testament, probably to study 1 John, although I'm still debating that. And I'm excited to begin something new. And yet, I'm sure as we study 1 John, we'll see ties to Judges, just as in Judges, we saw ties to Romans, which we studied earlier. Paul told the Roman church in Romans 15.4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Paul and the apostles and the other church leaders knew the Old Testament scripture, and they understood that if we reflect on the words of Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament, those words can help us understand Jesus in a deeper way. Because ultimately, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is a book about our need for Jesus, our hope in Jesus, and the blessings of God to humanity. More than anything, the Bible is a book of hope. No matter what your situation, you can find hope in the Bible. When we began our study of Judges back in July, we began with the very last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21-25, which reads, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And at that time, we reviewed the history of Israel that had brought them from the days that had brought them to the days of Judges, and we talked about the book of Judges and how it demonstrates our need for a king, and not just a king to fight for us against our enemies and keep order in his kingdom. When God raised Ehud to defeat the Moabites, he ruled for 18 years, but when he died, the people once again did evil in the sight of the Lord. When God raised Barak and he and Deborah defeated Jabin, the king of Canaan, they ruled for 20 years. But once again, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. When God raised Gideon, he led Israel to victory over the Midianites. 
But when he died, Abimelech, his son, killed all but one of his 70 brothers and crowned himself king. Jephthah defeated the Ammonites and ruled for seven years. Samson fought against the Philistines and served as a judge for 20 years. We have in Judges again and again seen this cycle of sin, bondage, deliverance, repentance, and back again with the slide into sin. Sometimes after a judge died, and sometimes soon after the judge was victorious over the enemy, the cycle repeats. In those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yes, God gave Israel judges to fight for them and sometimes lead them to righteousness. But in the peaceful time after the judge died and before a foreign nation came to oppress them, the people forgot the Lord and pursued what was right in their own eyes, what they desired. And the consequence of that sin was always bondage and misery. So now that we have read most of the book of Judges, I hope that when I return to this final verse today, we understand that the verse, we understand this verse in a more profound way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we understand it to mean, because there was no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was awful. There is no doubt that what Israel needs is the steady leadership of a good king. And the application here for us is very much like it was for Israel. We're no better than the Israelites in the time of Judges. With no king to guide us, we will do what is right in our own eyes. What Israel needed was a king to guide them. And what we need is a king to guide us. A king who will not only give the land order and security, but who will lead the land morally as well. A king who will guide Israel in righteousness before the Lord, and a king that will guide us in righteousness before the Lord. So today, as we conclude our study, I want to return to that final verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But today, instead of looking back at Israel's history, that set the stage for the time of the judges, I want to look forward in their history as we look forward to Jesus, Israel's coming king and our king. Today, I want to reflect on the joy we have because Jesus has come, and we are not directionless, because we have a king. So before I start, please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for the, your word and how every part of it gives us hope in you and teaches us about our Savior. Please use these words and judges to point us to Jesus. Fill our heart with your spirit so that we can understand and interpret your word in new and special ways. Fill this place with your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A proud young couple brought their newborn son to the pediatrician for his first checkup. And the doctor said, you have a beautiful baby. Smiling, the mom said, I bet you say that to all the moms. No, the doctor replied, just to those whose babies are really cute. So the mother thought about that and said, well, what do you tell the other parents? The doctor said, I tell them he looks just like you. <laughs> I, I was very tempted to skip over these last five chapters in Judges, chapters 17 through 21. It is, I think, one of the roughest sections in the Bible. If you remember reading them before, you might agree with me. And if you are unfamiliar with these chapters or don't recall them, well, buckle up. Ultimately, I decided that I did not 
if I did not spend at least some time with these chapters, eventually the lighting will be correct. If I did not spend at least some time with these chapters, we would miss exactly how bad a situation Israel was in at the end of Judges. And when we read out that they cried for a king in the book of Samuel, we might not understand just how desperate this nation was for steady leadership. And I didn't want to avoid this section because of its uncuteness. Because sometimes in these difficult, sec difficult sections, we can look and say, it looks just like me. But today, instead of reading all five chapters in their entirety, I'm going to summarize these two stories and allow you to read through them in, in their entirety later, or if you can multitask, you can turn to them now and follow along as I summarize. We're going to read Judges 17 through 21 today. In the previous chapter, we've read how leaders were raised to save Israel from a political situation that was caused by spiritual failures. And in these final five chapters of Judges, we read two stories of two separate Levite priests. And it gives us some insight into the spiritual situation in Israel that caused such political turmoil. Instead of leading the nation towards God, these Levites, who were the ordained religious leadership in Israel, had succumbed to the world. They too were doing what was right in their own eyes. They couldn't lead anyone to God because they had forgotten the way to God. And I think that one conclusion the author of Judges wants to leave us with is that a lot of the mess that the Israelite nation found themselves in could be laid right at the feet of the Levites in the failure of spiritual leadership. And I think that's a very frightening indictment. When the spiritual leaders of a nation begin to focus on the world and not God, this is what occurs. And I think as we look around the world today, it's hard not to fight examples of this in our world. So our first story begins in chapter 17, when a man named Micah returns 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. Now, he had stolen the money, and this was a lot of money at the time. But his mother had uttered a curse, something along the lines of, curse the person who took my money. So he doesn't return it because he feels bad, he returns it because he's afraid of the curse. And his mother is so surprised by his honesty in returning the silver that she gives him a blessing and dedicates a portion of the silver to the Lord. Micah uses the silver to cast an idol. And he enshrines the idol in his home with his other household gods. And he appoints one of his young sons as priest over the shrine. And there is so much wrong with these initial six verses the author pauses and says to us, in those days there was no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king to guide Micah, and so he did what felt right. And in this short section, they've already broken seven of the Ten Commandments. But in verse 7, we see a young Levite, who later we learn is named Jonathan. And he is a wandering priest. And perhaps we think, well, maybe this young Levite will bring godliness into this household. But we're soon disappointed. Micah recognizes the Levite priest. And he's thrilled with the idea of a true man of God leading his household. Micah offers Jonathan a job as his personal priest, in charge of his shrine with his great silver idol and his other household gods. And Jonathan accepts. And Micah couldn't be more happy as he replaces his son. 
And it sounds, no doubt, as a Levite priest, he sounds much more godly and holy and looks the part as he leads this family in the idol worship. Verse 13, Micah says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. The sad thing is a Levite really should have known better. They should have known that the situation was definitely not sanctioned by God and that no blessing could possibly come from it. Back in Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 10, Moses makes it pretty clear, and the Lord makes it pretty clear of what he thinks about idol worship. He says, if your very own brother or your son or daughter or your wife you love or your closest friend secretly entice you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the people around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death and the hands of all the people. Stone them to death because they have tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's pretty clear that the Levite priest should not be endorsing this idol worship. But sadly, at the end of chapter 17, the Levite priest seems happily employed in this family shrine, guiding this family in its idol worship in exchange for the comforts that Micah offers. And we get the impression that if this is typical for a Levite priest, we kind of understand why Israel was in such a bad situation in the time of Judges. They had no spiritual leadership. And in chapter 18, the author again begins with the familiar phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And because of that, we're kind of immediately suspicious of the new characters we see showing up. This tribe of Danites. And the Danites were a tribe of Israel who had been unable to conquer the land that Joshua and the priests had allotted to them. The Philistines were in it and they were too powerful for the Danites to conquer. And so instead of trusting the Lord and waiting on his timing, they send five spies to go in search of an alternative place to settle. This is not what Joshua and the high priest had in mind when they gave out the allotments of the land. But as these spies are searching the land, they near Micah's home and they hear a Levitical priest leading worship. And it must be distinctive because they immediately recognize him and they seek him out to confirm that they are blessed in this journey. And he does. He says, yes, you are blessed, very quickly. And the Danite spies continue on, and they find a peaceful, prosperous land that seems relatively unprotected. So they return to their tribe, and the news soon spreads, and 600 Danites and their families are on their way to conquer this land. And on their way, the five spies tell the army of the Levite they had seen in Micah's home. And the army makes a pit stop and they begin to steal Micah's idol and all his household gods. Jonathan confronts them. The young Levite confronts them. And, he, and they answer him in verse 19. They say, be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us, be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as a priest rather than just in one man's household? The priest, who is only living in Micah's household because it was a comfortable place to be, is really excited about this idea of the promotion. So he helps pack up the shrine, and they go on their way. 
And as we read, they do something unusual. They put the children and all their animals and possessions in front of the army, and the army pushes them onward. Kind of unusual, because usually you'd want your army in front and the possessions behind. But soon we find out why. They expect Micah to come after them. And he does, in verse 23. He comes shouting after them, and they turn, and they say, what's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, you took the gods I made and my priests and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, don't argue with us, or some of the men may get angry and attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. Mike is willing to risk his life for his gods. After all, a man must protect his gods. What a sad state of affairs. Their gods needed human protection and support to thrive. Aren't we glad that that's not true with our God? God desires a relationship with us and gave us his son so that we can have that relationship. But he doesn't need our protection. He's self-sufficient. But not these idols of Micah. They need Micah to rescue them. Because unlike our God, their gods could be carried off. They seem less like gods than trophies or good luck charms. Micah's willing to defend his gods up to a point, but when Micah sees the size of the Danite army, he decides that these gods might not be worth his life. So he turns around and heads home. And the Danites do go on to the land that they had found, and they conquer it, and they establish a city and name it Dan. Jonathan, the young Levite, sets up the idol, and his family, from then on, leads the Danite nation, the Danite tribe, into idol worship. And from here, the tribe of Dan really begins to fade into history. They're not mentioned in First Chronicles when the genealogies of the other tribes are given. And in Revelation 7, when the 144,000 witnesses are given from the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Dan is not included. And while this first story is pretty horrible, full of disobedience and sin, the next three chapters are even worse. Again, we're reminded right away in verse 1 of chapter 19 that in those days Israel had no king. And I think it's here to tell us that what follows could not possibly happen under the governance of a king. In these closing pages of Judges, there is wife abuse, homosexuality, gang rape leading to murder, injustice, brother killing brother, civil war and kidnapping. It's really packed full of sin. This chapter introduces us to a new Levite, another Levite. This Levite is living in the hills of Ephraim, and he had acquired a concubine, but she had been unfaithful to him and had fled back to her father's home in Bethlehem. So after about four months, the Levite went with his servant and a couple of donkeys to get his wife back. And the father-in-law is thrilled to see the priest, and he's eager to see the couple reconciled. So he throws feasts, and they are there feasting for several days, unable to get away from the man's hospitality. But finally, they begin their journey home kind of late in the afternoon. They come across the city, Jebus, which is Jerusalem, but at the time was in control of the Jebusites, a foreign nation. The Levite servant wants to stop there for the night, but the Levite doesn't feel good about staying in the city controlled by a foreign nation. He doesn't feel safe about it. 
So they press on to an Israelite city, and they arrive at the Benjamite city, Gibeah, late in the evening when the sun was setting. And they go to the city square, because that's where you go when you're travelers. You expect someone to see you in the city square and offer you hospitality for the night. But none of the Benjamites offer this priest from the hills of Ephraim hospitality. It's not until a farmer, an Ephraimite farmer, comes in from his fields late at night and sees this man and his wife and his servant sitting there that he takes them in. He seems eager to get them out of the city square. He says, you are welcome at my house. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. And what follows is a scene reminiscent of when the angels visit Lot in the city of Sodom, just before God destroyed the city with fire from heaven because of its wickedness. While the Levite and his host were eating dinner, the men from the town surround the house and they began pounding at the door, demanding that the farmer send the Levite out so that they can rape him. Evidently, it's not much safer here among his fellow Israelites than it would have been in the foreign city of Jebus. I wonder if indeed he may have been safer in that city. And in Judges 19, 23 through 26, we read exactly what happened. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. I tell you, the thought of this really makes me sick at heart. The thought that there was such wickedness in Israel and among the people that God had chosen and set apart as his. And it isn't just the men outside that sicken me. This Levite throws his concubine out into the street to be raped and abused. And once he's done with dinner, he goes to bed. I don't think we could paint a more powerful picture or make a more powerful point here that Israel was in desperate shape. We see here Israel's desperate need for a king, for order, and for spiritual leadership to guide and lead them from the sin that occurs when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Israel had been absorbed by the culture around them. They may even become worse than the culture around them. With this story, the author, who would have been familiar with the books of Moses, is making a clear point. Israel at the time of the judges was as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah at the time of Abraham. Centuries later, when the prophet Hosea needed an example of wickedness, he didn't use Sodom or Gomorrah. He used the city, Gibeah, the men in the town of Gibeah. So when we return to this awful account in 19, 27 through 28, we read about the Levite's reaction. It says, when her master got up in the morning, he opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way. There lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When I read this, I hope that perhaps the author is simplifying this account, and that's why it sounds so heartless and cold. 
But I'm not convinced of that. Because when he gets home, he cuts up the concubine into 12 pieces and sends a piece to each tribe of Israel. He's motivated to get justice against the men of Gibeah. And we read in verse 30, everyone who saw it said to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt. Just imagine we must do something, so speak up. And that ends chapter 19. And I think that's one of the more awful chapters in the Bible to read. But in chapter 20, but it does give us a feel of just how bad things were in, the, in Israel in the time of the judges. In chapter 20, the tribes of Israel gather to hear the account of the Levite. And then they prepare to make war and destroy the city of Gibeah. They want to rid the land of this evil. And it's an encouraging response to this dreadful crime. But when the Israelites go to the tribe of Benjamin, in whose land the city was in, and ask for help, or ask them to turn over this wicked city, the Benjamites refuse, and instead they raise an army to help defend the city of Gibeah. They gather 26,000 men to defend the city against the army that their fellow Israelites raised, 400,000. And while this civil war is not ideal, the tribes cannot allow this evil to remain and pollute the land. So they gather themselves to make war on the tribe of Israel, on the tribe of Benjamin. Paul later writes to the Corinthians church, Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 to encourage them to take action against sinful perversion that they were allowing in their midst. He tells them a little yeast leavens the whole bunch of dough. We are all sinners, but when sin is continual and habitual, and there is not an acknowledgement of it and a willingness to repent for the sin, it must be dealt with before it poisons the entire church body. Or in this case, this city poisons the entire land. It took the tribe of Israel three days of fighting to defeat the Benjamites. The Benjamites killed 48,000 Israelites on the first two days of battle. And on the third day, the Israelites lured the Benjamites away from the city and destroyed them. 600 Benjamites fled to the hills. But the Israelites went through the, through the territory of Benjamin and destroyed all the cities, much like they would Canaanite cities. They killed the women, the children, the animals. They burned everything. And chapter 20 ends with this. And in the final chapter of Judges, as things seem to calm down and the Israelites gather after this battle, they realize that they've decimated a tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. And they mourn the fact that an entire tribe of Israel seems destined to disappear because although there are 600 men remaining, they have sworn an oath that none of their women will be given as wives. The Benjamite women were destroyed. So the tribes of Israel devised two ways to supply the men of Benjamin with brides. First, they noticed that in the battle, when they had called everyone to battle, there was one territory that had not responded, Jabesh-Gilead. So they sent 12,000 men to kill everyone in Jabesh-Gilead, except for the virgin girls. And these 400 girls are given to the men of Benjamin. 
But 400 women are not enough brides for 600 men. So they devise a second way to get brides. They arrange for the Benjamites to kidnap several young women during a festival. And then they're satisfied that the tribe of Benjamin will survive and everyone heads home. And the author of Judges ends the book with, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I would add, it was awful. For the fourth time, the author tells us that there was no king in Israel. And for the second time, he adds, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Soon Israel would have a king. And with the establishment of a central government and a monarchy, things would improve from the time of Judges. The problem of every man doing what is right in his own eyes would be solved. Unfortunately, it was replaced with everyone being required, or at least strongly encouraged, to do what was right in the eyes of the king. And do you know that in the time of the kings of Israel and Judah, after the kingdom had split, after King Solomon's time, none of the 19 kings of Israel were good kings. And only eight or so of the kings of Judah were good kings. And that's not a very promising track record. And we read what the chronicler's opinion makes is of someone who makes a good king. Most of these kings were wealthy. Some were able to defeat enemies in battle, even powerful nations like the Assyrians. But the most important thing is that these eight good kings followed God. They led the people to do what was right in God's eyes. They honor and restore God's house. They get rid of idolatrous worship in the land. They celebrate God's holy days and revere the laws given to Moses. This is what makes a good king and a good leader. Because any kingdom will be a reflection of its king, good or bad. So after 19 bad kings of Israel, the kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians, never to return. And after the mixture of eight good kings and 12 bad kings, the kingdom of Judah was defeated and exiled to Babylon. But later Judah returned, but they were never again led by a king. They were led by priests until they were conquered by Greece and later by Rome. So earthly kings were never enough to bring peace to this land because their earthly kingdoms could only be a reflection of an imperfect man who was on the throne. So while the author of Judges was writing to the fellow Israelites to promote a budding monarchy in the land, when we read in Judges that there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, we as Gentiles in a land far from Israel look for a new kingdom with a new type of king who can give us peace and lead us to righteousness. And when Jesus began to preach, his, his message echoed John the Baptist's message. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is our king. And he has begun to establish his kingdom in each of his followers. And we demonstrate that we are part of his kingdom with our repentance. And Jesus' kingdom like any king, is a reflection of himself. And that's why Jesus began his ministry with a call to repentance. Repentance means to turn from your sin and your pride and to turn to our king and our God. In the time of the judges, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it was awful. Isn't it good news that we have a king? 
A king who has a kingdom that reflects his glory and his righteousness. So when we accept Jesus as king and become part of his kingdom, we repent from doing what is right in our own eyes and seek to do what is right in the eyes of our king. And when we become part of his kingdom, our allegiances will change. If Christ is our chosen king, we must submit to his authority. Our king deserves our honor, our loyalty, and our obedience. We must put ourselves under his authority and his power. Whatever he says, we determine to do. And if we are in his kingdom, we must seek to do the will of the king. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So when we become part of his kingdom, our allegiances must change. And when we accept Jesus as our king and become part of his kingdom, our expectations will change. One of the difficulties people have with the idea of the kingdom of heaven is that it doesn't appear to be in place yet. We have expectations of security and comfort in this world that don't always materialize. The world seems to grow farther and farther away from God as a result. As a result, it's easier to live for the here and now, to live for what is right in our own eyes, as if this present life is all that matters. But the hope of Christ's kingdom is that there is far more to life than this life. And once we begin to understand the glory of his coming kingdom, the here and now will matter less and less. Our hope as followers of Christ is not in this world, but it's in our king's coming kingdom. Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought the field. When we accept Jesus and learn of his kingdom, the world matters less and less, and his kingdom matters more and more. And when we accept Jesus as our king and become part of his kingdom, our values will change. Our culture values achievement, success, independence, and image. But the values of the kingdom of heaven reflect what matters to our king. So what values matter to our king? Jesus described a number of his values in Matthew 5, 3 through 10. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Citizens of Christ's kingdom must adopt the king's values and make choices that reflect those values in our jobs, in our families, and in our community. When we accept Jesus as our king and become part of his kingdom, our priorities will also change. Our priorities will reflect those values. And what we prioritize is where we will spend our time and our money. Matthew 6, 13 through, sorry, 31 through 33 say, Don't worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. 
Jesus did not demean the value of work or diminish our need for material goods, but our priorities should reflect his values. Humility, mercy, seeking peace, hungering for righteousness, and purity of heart. Jesus challenged us to put his kingdom above the world by bringing the values of his kingdom into our day-to-day lives. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament focus on Israel, but the prophet Daniel prophesied the coming of great kings and empires that would shape the entire world. And each of these great kingdoms continued to give way to lesser kingdoms. But in Daniel 7, he has a vision of the end. When at last a king is crowned and a kingdom established that will never end, and that outstrips all the kingdoms that have come before it. He says in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Israel in the time of Judges had no king. They did what was right in their own eyes, and it was not good, it was awful. And even once they had a king to bring order to the land, the kingdom was ever-changing as kings died and were replaced. But we see, we have a king whose dominion is everlasting, and whose kingdom will never be destroyed. And even as we look forward to the day when Christ will return and establish his kingdom fully, we can begin now to begin living in that kingdom by honoring the values of our king. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, our king. Thank you that we see his values and we understand them, and that his values, our king's values, lead us to you, to our God. Thank you for the establishment of his kingdom years ago, even as we look forward to fully experiencing it when he returns. Please help us to walk in his ways. Help us to reflect our king in what we do, what we say, how we act. Pray this in his name. Amen.